privilege to be here this morning and to have you joining us here, not only for our morning worship service, but for our afternoon meal together and fellowship together. Our scripture reading now is found in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles and listen, follow along with me as I read. If you don't have a Bible of your own, our ushers have Bibles available. Just raise your hand and they'll bring a Bible that you can use throughout our service this morning. We're going to start at Galatians 1, verse 11 through chapter 2. Let's all stand then in respect to the reading of God's holy word. Follow along with me as I read Galatians 1, 11 through the end of chapter 2. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal the Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in persons to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seem influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had, had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, 
I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May God give us understanding in the word of God that we'll be looking at this morning. I ask you if you remain standing with me in the word of prayer. After prayer, our choir will come with special music. And then the preaching from Galatians chapter 2 this morning. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to come together today. We thank you for bringing us through the challenges of this week and allowing us to fellowship, to be a, um, amongst each other, to hear your word taught in Sunday school and now to hear your word in this service. We pray that you would just help us to give attention to your truth and that your Holy Spirit will enlighten us as we hear your truth, that you would empower me as the speaker to present your truth in a way that you would have draw attention to you and to it and not take away from your word. So we pray that you would bless our time together as we look over your word and again open our hearts to receive all that you have for us to receive. We pray for this congregation, Lord. Many requests are listed on our email prayer list and we just pray that you would work in the hearts and in the lives of each of those uh, people that are mentioned in those requests that you would keep us mindful to continue to pray for each other, pray for your work here. We give you thanks, Lord, and give you glory for who you are and what you have done and what you are doing in our lives and what you will do. We look forward to that, Lord. So we thank you for um, your work in our lives. We thank you for your, your keeping. We thank you for watching over the different ones this week. Uh, we think of Patty's mom and and uh, the accident and the fall that she had and the breaking of a, a vertebrae in her neck. We just pray that you would just continue to watch over and bless and keep her. Be with Nick and Patty and their family and their extended family, Lord, that uh, is going through this 
um, ordeal and be with her husband Ed as well to, to allow him to um, be ministered to and to minister to her in, in appropriate ways. Um, we thank you, Lord, they have expressed a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that that faith might carry them in this time of, of, of challenge and trouble. We thank you for blessings, Lord, like um, uh, Jeremy and Michelle and the completion sale of their house and allowing that to go through. And uh, we just pray that you would continue to, to be with them and bless, protect him, Lord, as a police officer, that you would uh, watch over him, that you would be with her, and just assure her, Lord, that he is in your hand and that you care for him, that we are praying for him and, and others uh, that are on the force during uh, these trying times, Lord. We pray for each other and the physical ailments that, that, that are present here. We pray for, for John and, and uh, the virus that he's contracted, that you would watch over and be with him and protect him and bless him. We thank you for those who are instrumental in preparing for our meal today and it's just the work that they've done for that. We thank you for, for their willingness, Lord, to, to, to do that and to allow this to go well. So we just, again, thank you. We think of, of um, Trinace and Fidel and, and uh, their daughter Taylor and, and her uh, son being born this week and that going well without any uh, undue hardship. We thank you for that, Lord. We've been praying for that, and we thank you for your answers to prayer there. Now we pray again. Open our eyes to your truth and your word. Prepare our hearts to receive it, and that our lives might reflect uh, our faith in you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Our series in Galatians continues today in chapter 2. We've seen the theme of Galatians, the, Paul's letter to the believers at Galatia, and we've seen his defense of his apostleship and why that was necessary, because we immediately see the burden that he has for the gospel. And that's the reason why this letter is so important to us today. It helps us understand the basics of the gospel so that we will not stray away from it. We cannot miss Paul's warning to these believers when he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul is amazed, he's not pleased, he's astonished, and he says to them that you're turning away from God. It's not about what Paul uh, uh, did and, and, and his work, but he says, I'm astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you. And so when we go from the gospel, we are turning from God. You turn from God, yes, you're a disappointment to believers here at this church, but you have deserted God, the one who called you. And Paul says, that I'm concerned about that. I'm astonished about that. So Paul begins to lay down his own 
authority as an apostle and why he addresses this issue. While he does that, he gives us a sense of a couple of things. One, we have a clear sense that his call to the gospel was not dependent upon his relationship with the other apostles. In other words, he didn't get authority from them. He got his authority from God. Paul says something that you and I can't say in verse 11, verse 12. He says, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. He's talking about the gospel that he preached. He didn't receive it from any man, nor did he, was he taught it. Now, that's not a bad thing to receive the gospel from men or to be taught by the gospel or to have the, talk, the gospel taught to you. The gospel was taught to me. The gospel was taught to you. And so Paul was saying, there's something unique about him. And what is unique about him is that no man taught him this gospel. In essence, he's saying, it's not my gospel, and it's not anybody else's. It's exclusively God's gospel. And God used Paul in such a way that he spoke directly to him. He said, I received it by revelation. Paul was unique as a servant of God to get the gospel, and he had the responsibility to give that gospel out, and he saw that the gospel was being perverted, was being twisted to a point where he says it's another gospel. It's totally different than what God gave me, and so it is not the gospel because there's only one gospel. The gospel concerns Jesus Christ. Now today, he's going to get into the meat of that. What does that mean? When we get into chapter 2, it seems like the issue becomes that of circumcision. And circumcision is involved here, but it's way more important than just circumcision itself. Let's look at what he says in, in chapter 2 as he goes to tell his story about um, his path. I was saying before that he's saying that the gospel that God gave him didn't come by the authority of the other apostles, but it came in cooperation with them. That in other words, he didn't get authority from them. He was their equal, but he worked along with them in this gospel, and they did not dispute. They were in one accord with what this gospel was all about. Now, that's important. So Paul's going to walk a thin line. He's going to show that he didn't depend on them for his authority. He is their equal, and they worked they are working together as partners in this gospel, and yet he is very disappointed in them for not protecting or seeing this slight of the gospel and not protecting this gospel as they should. What you and I should take from this is that the gospel is important. The purity of the gospel must be, main be maintained. 
In other words, we need to understand what the gospel says and how important that is to our salvation. And then we need to see that that's maintained by how we think about it, how we teach it, and how we transfer it to others who need to hear that gospel. Why is this important? Because it is the gospel and the gospel alone that give the life-saving message of Jesus and his work on the cross that pays for sin. If we don't get that right, people don't come to understand what God has done and find their salvation in him and serve him in right ways. That is critical. So at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time, he says, I got Barnabas and Titus along with me. He's showing during this time period that he had very little interaction with the other apostles. And so he wasn't depending on them for the truth of this gospel. God gave it to him. The reason why he was going now to Jerusalem, you have to understand, Jerusalem is the center and is the start of where the gospel started to spread. Remember, Jesus met with his apostles after his resurrection. He says, I want you to meet me here. And he says, I'm leaving you here. And I want you to start getting this message out, getting this gospel out. And I want you to start in Jerusalem. And the whole theme or the whole outline of Acts is that the gospel started in Jerusalem, it branched out to, to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then all over the world. And so the center or the start of it was right there in Jerusalem. And the apostles that Christ had, had appointed were all there working in the church there in Jerusalem, and then they slowly started to branch out. So Paul is saying he, he stayed away from Jerusalem for a while because God had dealt with him and was working in him and was giving that revelation to him apart from what was happening in Jerusalem. And he says, now, 14 years later, I'm coming back to Jerusalem and I, I got some guys with me. Now, if you study the Word of God, you'll, you'll ask the question, what, what time is he referring to in Galatians chapter 2? I happen to think it coordinates very well with Acts chapter 15, and that is the council in Jerusalem where they were deciding the important issue of what is the true message of the gospel. Now, you may see it that it, 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 it may, you may have some problems with coordinating it there and see some issues that maybe don't seem to line up, but Paul's purpose in presenting it here is simply to say that I, I was not interacting all the time with the regular apostles, but God gave me this message and God gave me this authority, and it didn't conflict with any message that the other apostles had either. In fact, when we got together to settle some issues and some problems that people were having, you can see how we worked together. So he says that, after he had done some work in ministry, he came back with Barnabas and he came back with Titus. And he says, verse 2, I went up because of revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Now, as I read that verse, I skipped over a little part that was in parentheses. 
Because what's hard about preaching uh, what Paul writes and what's hard about reading through it is, is Paul's argument is so intense that he makes a point here and sometimes he'll break off from that point and have these other little points under there that he makes on the side and then he'll get back to that main point. And for me, that, it's hard to follow that all the time because you got to read the whole thing and see, and see how it flows. And so what he's saying, look again at verse 2. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, skip though privately before those who seem influential, the gospel that are proclaimed among the Gentiles. So he set before the apostle the gospel that he had been proclaiming among the Gentiles. Why does he do that? Why does he come before the apostles now? He says, in order to make sure that I was not running or had, had not run in vain. Paul says, there wasn't any confusion on my end about what the gospel was saying, but I wanted to make sure that these guys, we were lining up because I don't want to be speaking one thing and them going carried carry away in something else because God is not divided. I want this thing to, to be coordinated in the right way. Notice, though, in the parentheses, though privately before those who seem influential. You're going to notice in this passage, Paul makes three references this way. And he uses this term, those who seemed influential. I can tell you exactly what he means by that and walk you through it. You'll see he's talking about Peter, who's also called Cephas, and he's talking about James, and he's talking about John. Peter, James, and John, at this point, were the key leaders, the top of the apostles. That's why he mentions them as those who seemed influential. Later on, you read in chapter 2, let's go back to, to verse 6. And those who seem to be influential, use that term again, again in verse 6 at the end of that, those I say who seem influential added nothing to me. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they, those who seem influential, saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the, circum to the uncir uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the, circumcision, to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Now he mentions their name. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. He makes three or four references to these leaders of the church, apostles on the same level that he's on. He respects them. And in the first parentheses, we see that he says this, though privately before those who seemed influential, that's in verse 2, in verse 6, he says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Now, he's not dissing them. He's just saying they are key apostles, but that means nothing with God. You know why he's doing that? 
It's because the false teachers who were trying to bring in this false gospel, this thing that's not a gospel, were tying themselves with the leadership and the apostles, Peter, James, and John. And they were saying, we got authority from them. Who is this Paul? And what is he talking about? And Paul is saying, well, first of all, whether you have authority from them, even if you had an authority from an angel from heaven, if you preach in a different gospel, you can be accursed. You have nothing. He's not dissing the apostles in that. He's just saying, look, there's not another gospel coming from them that doesn't jive with the gospel that God gave me. It's nonsense. And you playing up the influence of these men as if they back what you say and they do not. That's why he's speaking to the Galatians this way. Who's who's influential in your life more than the gospel and what God has to say? Who are you giving an ear to? If you're listening to something more than you are to God, then you stand the, the, the risk of being polluted by what you're listening to instead of making sure you're lining up with the gospel. In fact, one of the key phrases in this whole passage of chapter 2 we're going to get to in verse 14. Let me just read it. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's the problem Paul had. The conduct of these individuals was not in step with the truth of the gospel. See, God has given a gospel, and he expects our lives to line up with it. Let's see what that means as we go along. He makes a point that God had given this gospel. Let me go back earlier in chapter 2 so we can see the, the progression here. He says, I came to Jerusalem, and I had two people with me. Barnabas was one, and Titus was another. And he says in verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. There we see the first reference to circumcision. He says, Titus wasn't wasn't compelled. He didn't see a need, and I didn't see a need for him to be circumcised. What is he dealing with here? Is that the, the false teachers are saying, look, it's not enough to trust in Christ. You need to be a good Jew. You need to be circumcised in, in order to be justified of your sin, in order to be saved. You need to follow the rites of circumcision, and then you're okay. They didn't have a problem with trusting in Christ. They were simply going to add a little something, something to it. And Paul could have said, okay, well, you know, as long as you believe in trusting in Christ, I'm cool with that. But he said, no, 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 no. You cannot add some something, something to Christ and call it the gospel. 
He says, God gave me this revelation, and let me challenge you with it. So he says, I came back with them uh, to talk to, to the folks at Jerusalem, and, and I had Titus with me. And let me tell you, we weren't compelled in our ministry where Titus received Christ. We know he was a Greek. He was a Gentile. We weren't compelled to have him circumcised, and there were folks who were bothering us, trying to force us to do that. So he says in verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? So he calls them who they are, false brothers. Now, they claim to be those who follow Christ, but they're false. And not just false because they don't know right or they, 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 they don't quite understand. They are purposely false. Jesus calls them uh, 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 false sheep. They're, 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 they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They try to act like sheep, but they come in to destroy the faith. He says, these false brothers slipped in. He said, what are they doing? They slipped in to, sl to, to, to spy out our freedom. He says, what they were doing, they were trying to see if the converts, those who Paul had preached the gospel to and had come to know Christ as Savior, if they were, were circumcised. Well, how do you find that out? Well, you sneak around privately where they're undressing, and you look to see if, in fact, they have been circumcised. Why would you do something like that? How important is that? They would do that because they thought it was absolutely necessary for you not only to say that you trusted in Christ, but to be circumcised. And they, here the gospel was going and had gone to the Jews in Jerusalem and they was moving out past that. And Paul had done a ministry in Antioch that was a little ways away from Jerusalem. And now he was coming back to report to Jerusalem just to let them know what God had done in the gospel. And as I report back, I bring a guy, Titus, with me. And I want to tell you, they tried to spy out to see whether or not he was circumcised. Why? Why would they do that? So that they might bring us into slavery. At the end of verse 4, what was Paul's response? Verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. What you notice in the text is that you see the first mention of circumcision and you see it be, become a contentious issue. Not because Paul makes it one, but because the false teachers, the false brethren are, are demanding that those who trust in Christ also be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul corrects that because it is a wicked error. He mentions two words here, freedom in verse 4, and slavery, and then add another word, submission. We see the tone of his voice. They slipped in to spy out our freedom. When, it come, when a person comes to know Christ, Christ has set them free. And Paul says they wanted to spy out how we 
acted in his freedom so that they might bring us into slavery. Paul shows that the purpose of false teaching takes you from the freedom of the gospel into the slavery of sin. And he says he didn't budge. He did not yield, did not yield in submission. Paul was one to believe that he should submit in several areas, but not when it came to the truth of the gospel. And not when it came to living a life consistent with the gospel, and he did not yield to them. So he says he came now to these key apostles who were influential. And look what happens with them. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, skip that parenthesis if you can, go back down to uh, verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. See, the church was in a very key transitional point, and they needed to deal with this key issue. What is it that justifies a person? We use the word justify. We get into the end of this chapter, too. You see that word used several times. Justify means what makes them right with God and declares them to be okay. Technically, it means to declare one righteous. God justifies us by one thing, and that's by faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you remember that? Very easy to remember. We're justified, we're justified through faith by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That and that alone makes us right with God. He gets into that point as we go on. But what he says here is that, hey, when I finally did meet with these key leaders in the church, they realized that just as God had worked through Peter to minister to the, the circumcised, to the Jews, he worked through me to minister to the Gentiles. And they were okay with that. They lined up with that. And they extended to me the right hand of fellowship. You know what the right hand of fellowship was? It wasn't authority given by the apostles to say, Paul, you're okay to do this. He didn't need that authority. He had gotten that from God. What it is is a lining up and an agreement and a partnership. To say, Paul, we are with you because the same gospel that we're giving to the Jews, you are presenting to, to the Gentiles, and God has already given you that authority. We say to amen to what God has done. That's what this right hand of fellowship is. It says, I'm in agreement with what God is doing in your life, and I'm lining up with God's purpose. That's what this right hand of fellowship meant. And Paul was letting the writers, letting the readers of his letter to those in Galatia know he didn't get authority from the apostles, but he certainly got lining up with them because he's on the same level with them and he's preaching the same gospel. He didn't bring in the gospel. They didn't bring in the gospel. It came down from God and they're speaking it. He to the Gentiles, they to the Jews, but it's the same 
gospel and it's consistent. The same thing that justifies a Jew is the same thing that justifies a Gentile. The same thing that brings salvation to one whose Jewish descent is the same gospel that brings salvation to any and everyone else. Now, Paul uses the example to point that out. The first example used was Titus. Titus didn't need to be circumcised, and Paul didn't bother with that. The second one is dealing with the apostles himself, verse 11. But when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. You see the difficulty of this whole passage is that Paul wants to show that he doesn't get authority from them, but that he lines up with them when they line up with him, but that he also opposed them when they went off track. And it, it, it reminds us of the fact that the apostles were men and subject to error, and yet God used them in, in great Ways And one of the great ways that he uses them is to use one of them to correct the other when that became necessary. So he says, I had an interaction with Cephas. Very interesting, he said. When Cephas came to Antioch, that's the, that is where Paul's uh, missionary mission was, was centered in, where his church was, was, was headquarters at. He says, when, when, when Cephas, or when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Paul is straightforward. He says, I didn't do this behind the back. I didn't write him a bunch of anonymous emails. I didn't send voicemail messages on his phone, and, and so he wondered who might know about this. I went straight to him, and I talked very straightforwardly with him in front of everybody. He said, here's the situation, verse 12. For before certain men came from James, now James is, is, is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, and he is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And there you have Peter and John as well. They are the three leaders there in the church. He says, before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. And Paul basically said, I ain't got no problem with that. But this is what Peter was doing. But when they came, these certain men from James, from Jerusalem, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He said, look, when Peter was with the Gentiles in Antioch by himself, he was free, eating with them, fellowshipping with them, had no problem. But when the folks from Jerusalem came, the Jews from the circumcision, he, he separated from those brothers and acted like he didn't have nothing to do with them. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. You see how strong Paul in his wording? He, he didn't say, Yo, you know, they made a little mistake. Uh, things didn't line up. He said, no, they were hypocrites. These are believers. In fact, this is an apostle. He says, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. The one who's with me. Here's the key. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, 
Paul sees that this is not just a preference thing. This isn't like Peter saying, hey, y'all, I'm friends with y'all, but my other friends came, and, you know, i got to give some attention to them. So I'm going to, you know. And he said, no, it ain't, it ain't that simple, Peter. You are distorting the gospel when you do that. When your life does not line up with the truth of the gospel, you are saying something false about the gospel. And Paul said this needed to be corrected. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. Here's what Paul says to Peter. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Isn't it very simple, straightforward? He says, Peter, you're a Jew, but you had a freedom to eat with the Gentiles, and so you don't have to live like a Jew. You can eat with them, you can eat what they eat. But now, when the Jews come, you can't do that. How come you got the freedom to not act like a Jew when you want to, but you demand that the Gentiles live like Jews? Is there something wrong with that? And it's not just a small matter. This affects the truth of the gospel. He brings out that point. Now let's look at the main part, verse 15 on. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Here we see the first use of the word justify. And we're going to see it three other times, or two other times as well in this chapter. Let's just read. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He says to Peter, look, you understand, you were taught by Jesus himself. You understand this, that we're Jews by birth, but we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. We understand the law, but we understand this, that justification does not come from keeping any parts or even all parts of the law. And he makes this point. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. A Jew cannot be justified by working the law, by being circumcised, by doing anything in obedience to the law. He cannot be free from his sin and have eternal life. He can't get it by doing something from the law. Now, what does that mean to us today? It makes it clear it's not by man's effort that salvation it comes or is even made more secure. See, here's the problem. We don't understand grace. And I don't say that in a demeaning way. What I'm saying is grace is so magnificent. It's way past my understanding. There's nothing in my physical body that relates in any way to grace. There's nothing in this world that relates to grace. 
God gives us what we don't deserve, what we can't give ourselves, and he gives it to us at his cost. We talk about it being free, but it's, it's not free in the sense of it doesn't cost anything. It's just that God himself has paid the price. This is grace. We, when we worship, here's what we do. We're simply marveling at grace all the time. So we never fully come to understand and comprehend it. That's why we marvel. That's how we do towards God. We never fully come to op- comprehend God until we marvel at him. That's called worship. The same with what comes from God is grace. You know, I think we think we become intelligent and we get our theology right and so we've, we've mastered grace. No, we haven't. What we do is we simply marvel more and more and more and more of it. And that's what we ought to do in worship. Paul says, you've stripped grace out of this whole equation. And you've made it now man's effort. What man has to do to be right with God. And you strip grace. What happens when you strip grace? Look, look, at, look how Paul addresses this. At the end of verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let me just go through what he says here in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified, use that word again, in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? He said, look, if we sought to be justified in Christ and we were still found to be sinners, in other words, it didn't work, then what good is Christ? If Christ only or trusting in Christ alone does not bring justification What good is trusting in Christ? What good does Christ do? You've eliminated grace out of the equation and you've gone back to then you've got to fulfill the law. He says that's a dangerous place to be in. It's a dangerous place because it's a place where you can't be justified. You can't be made right with God outside of what Christ has done. It's impossible. He wants us to marvel. God wants us to marvel in his grace. In verse 18, so for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is he building and tearing down? The law. I tore down the law, and if I rebuild it, after I tore it down, I said, look, Christ, you made me free. The law, you have, you have been, you have fulfilled the law for me, and therefore I'm free from the law. Now, after being free from the law, I'll come back and rebuild it again and say, I've got to be circumcised. He said, that sounds like nonsense. I've become a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law. You know, some people think it's just double talk here, but you really have to follow his argument. He says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. In other words, the law says you've got to do all this in order to be any kind of right with God, and it makes it apparent it ain't going to happen. Ain't no way in the world you're going to do that. Nobody has ever done that. So he says, 
Through the law, I died to the law. How did I die to the law through the law? I couldn't do it. I couldn't fulfill the law. Christ stepped out and says, look, I will fulfill the law for you, and I will go to the cross and be condemned on the cross in obedience to the law, and I'll represent you. So if you believe in my death, you too now have died from the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. Christ is a sinner here. He says, look, it's what Christ has done that brings my justification. Not anything else that I have done, can do, or will do. It's Jesus, and it's Jesus alone. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's so full that I, I, can't, I can't even break it all down in, in this message. That's going to carry us all the way through Galatians. So we'll come back to that verse and start unpacking it more and more. But you get the, the gist of what it's saying is that, look, God knew that I could not fulfill the law, couldn't walk in obedience to the law, and so I was condemned. I was doomed. Christ came, paid the price for me, totally fulfilled all of the law, and did it for my sake or in my place. And so now in him, I walk free, free from the law. Now he says, verse 21 is what I want to wrap up. I do not nullify the grace of God. When you add anything to salvation other than, than faith in Christ, you begin to nullify the grace of God. And then he says this, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if it could be accomplished that you and I could be made right with God by keeping the law, then there'll be no need for Christ to come and no need for him to die on the cross for sins. So why would God do that? He's, he argues that God didn't do that because there was no way for us to be right with God by keeping the law. It was absolutely necessary and essential that Christ come and pay the price for us. And in essence, he's saying this, there is no other means for justification other than Christ. And you cannot, you err by trying to add anything to that. What well, should be good news. <laughs> it is good news to the believer. But it's not welcome by these who are caught in the snare of false teaching. But Paul is challenging them and helping them to see this gospel that is so important. It's so important that the gospel be preserved in our thinking of it so we rightly apply it in our lives. And then the last thing I want to reemphasize again, it's important that our lives then line up with the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul said to Peter. He says, hey, when I saw that their life was not in step with the truth of the gospel, he said, that's what got me riled up. That's what got me upset. Your life needs to be in step with the gospel. You know, Peter, apostle chosen by God, said in the highest position that man could be in, had air in his life. 
he had, he had, some, he had some learning to do. Couldn't that be true for you and me? And if Peter's life affected others, could not you and I be affecting others? What is the message of the gospel that we're giving to others in our life? By our inconsistency or by our consistency? Are we lining up with the truth of the gospel? Are we showing people what it really means to walk with Christ? Are we an example to them? Or do we think we could just tell them something and not live it in front of them and not be it in front of them? It's important for us to line up with the truth of the gospel, to know the gospel, to trust Christ, and then to live consistent lives that line up with that gospel. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the challenge to our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see, help us to digest, and help us to, to first of all, to marvel in your grace. We sang a song this morning, Wonderful Grace of Jesus. Help us to live like that. Like we're trusting in nothing else and no one else but you and what you've done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be consistent in our living so the gospel is not distorted in those who see us, who watch us every day. We have a responsibility to you and a responsibility to them to live consistently. So, Lord, help us to line up more consistently with your gospel. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dismiss our service, I want to mention just a few things. We're going to get ready for our meal next door. All here are invited to come. I know we've asked people to contribute, and that's simply to say you ought to be willing you ought to be willing to, to give for the fellowship and the time that we share together. You know, I, I looked at one day this week, I, I, I was working outside the home, and I had to stop for lunch, and I, I got a, a sandwich, something to drink, and a little something to go with there, like some chips or something. And I want to tell you, it was over $5 for that simple meal on the road. I'm not trying to sell you a meal. I'm just trying to say, look, it ought to be worth it for you to give of yourself for that simple thing. And if for some reason you didn't come prepared to do that, fine. Join us today. You're welcome to be with us and to share. The other thing I'm going to do is that I know we have families that sit together and families with young children are going to continue to do that. We're also going to mix and blend together so that we're not just, we won't have a table of Milwaukee Rescue Mission men, and that's all there is. We're going to ask you to divide and split and to choose a table um, so, that, so that we're all blended together. Now, when I get over there and I see it some other way, I'm going to change things up. If I'm going to give you a chance to do it right, then I'm going to jump in and, and, and change it if I have to. So hear what I'm saying. Families. You can sit together, fine, but welcome others to, to join you as well so that we just don't have just separated groups. The, part, the important part of our fellowship is, is to come together and the fellowship. And uh, so what we're going to do 
is a fellowship amongst ourselves here, and we're going to transition over there. We give ourselves a few minutes to, to do that. Like I said, we want everybody here to be a part of that meal, so you're already invited uh, to just come on over and uh, have a seat after our short time of fellowship. Um, when we get over there, I'll make another announcement, and uh, we'll thank the Lord for our food and thank for those who helped prepare it, and then we'll eat together. We also have some, some things scheduled, some music and so forth, and uh, we'll share in that, and then we'll be done for the day. All right. <laughs>